You are about to listen to the full interview with Dr. Massimo Teodorani. Sections of it were originally included in our Hestalin Lights episode. If you haven't listened to the full episode, we recommend you go listen first. It'll provide context for this interview. Dr. Teodorani is a distinguished Northern Italian astrophysicist known for his extensive research in explosive stellar phenomena, involvement in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and study of anomalous aerial phenomena. With a PhD in stellar physics from the University of Bologna, he has contributed significantly to astrophysics. He works closely with Project Hestalin and dug deep into many different theories surrounding the origins of the light phenomenon. My name is um, Massimo Teodorani. I am an astrophysicist and I have a PhD in astrophysics. I've been taken at Bologna University, which is the oldest university in Europe. And I've been working years and years in astrophysical research, in particularly with stars that show explosive effects like supernovae, novae, cataclysmic variables, protostars, but I have been working also on SETI, SETI project and extrasolar planets, both using uh, optical telescopes and uh, radio telescope and also ultraviolet uh, space telescope. So this is uh, my activity. Um, I have been a researcher. Now I, uh, at present, I am an independent researcher relatively because I collaborate with several organizations abroad, in particular United States. And uh, I have been a lecturer and professor several times at university teaching physics for some courses of um, master level. And uh, I am a divulger of science. I published uh, 24 books and uh, I uh, give uh, very often uh, lectures of popularizing astrophysics, uh, physics, uh, quantum physics, but it's something more like an academic level, but in a soft way so that everyone can understand. Parallelly, um, I've been uh, working on, uh, on the study on the scientific study of anomalous light phenomena. Starting with the uh, Stalin lights, I did uh, several missions there using instruments, and then uh, not only in Stalin, but also in other places uh, that uh, showed uh, similar phenomena in Italy, in Canada, uh, in United States. So just to give an idea of, uh, in my free time, I am an electronic musician and I play synths and um, that's my hobby. So that's all. Uh, yeah, I was listening to your music actually before we jumped on. I, I, I really like it. Um, and you have such an interest. You have so many interests and in such a wide range of work that you've done. It's really impressive to see. You also have a really pretty um, deep discography of a lot of music you've produced over the years as well. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I just uh, I just enjoy in following the German uh, school, Berlin School of Electronic Music, very similar to Tangerine Dream and. Uh, uh, other group of that kind. So how did you first get connected and learn about the Hestalin lights? Um, what was your first encounter with the phenomenon? Oh, it was it was um, very strange because uh, the first time I got interested in Hestalin uh, lights, I was uh, walking at the free market somewhere near here. And uh, there was a desk of um, books, many books. At some time, one book fell from from the desk because I with my elbow I hit it and the book fell just on a page at the very end of the book which was by Jenny Randles who is a very serious researcher and that book there was an appendix with about half a page telling project is done I didn't I knew nothing about that before it was 1992 um, I had just got my PhD title and at some point uh, it was very useful because I collected a lot of uh, UFO books. I have to admit I had something like 5,000 but uh, honestly I was bored by listening all those stories because you know, they're just stories. What can we do? What an astronomer can do with that? So we know the basic physics, photonic physics, so 
photometry, photography, spectroscopy, and um, radio spectrometry, magnetometry. We have all the know-how to measure this kind of phenomenon. The difference is that it's not stars that are very far away, but they are luminous objects in the sky uh, with which uh, that we can measure using our instruments if we are sufficiently lucky. Okay, clearly they are not objects with uh, fixed coordinates, so it's uh, they happen randomly in the sky. But there are some locations in the world, and probably Hesdalen is the most famous of all, which work like a, a laboratory because this kind of phenomenon occur very often there so it's a good occasion to uh, to attempt some measurements as we did yeah and could you actually maybe give me an overview of what Hestalen lights are for someone who maybe has never heard of them before oh yes Hestalen lights are apparently spheres of light Okay, so there is no structure. Normally, there is no structure. There are floating spheres that are, uh, see, are seen in the sky, sometimes also very close to the ground, with different colors, uh, normally white. Sometimes they are red, uh, also red and blue. Sometimes they are connected to the, together, they're multiple. And um, sometimes their apparition is preceded by sort of uh, very sudden uh, lightning in the sky, uh, something like flash in the sky that uh, occur. So there are many, you know, manifestations of this kind of phenomenon. And uh, uh, apparently it looks like ball lightning, okay? Ball lightning is just a light ball natural phenomenon, clearly of which we don't know much so far. The difference between ball lightning and the Stalin lights is that uh, knowing the distance of the Stalin lights and uh, comparing with the statistics of ball lightning, I, we can say that the uh, Stalin lights are at least 10 times, sometimes 50 times bigger than uh, ball lightning, which normally is like an orange or a watermelon, okay? And Stalin light can be also uh, 10 meters across. And the other difference between both lightning is that uh, it's a much scale, uh, the scale is much bigger and they can last much more. Uh, as a ball lightning can last only 30 seconds maximum of one minute. In the case of Esdalen lights, they can last uh, uh, up to one hour sometimes while uh, they are turning off and turning on because they tend to pulsate uh, very often. It's not a stable light in general. And uh, in amidst this kind of uh, apparently natural phenomenon, people there as seen, also uh, including myself, uh, structured light phenomena which uh, show geometry and which show something that looks like a flying machine. Uh, it happened to me too and I saw uh, twice, probably thrice, uh, the same thing and the reason we don't know what is the connection, clearly I have uh, uh, how to say uh, speculations about that the most uh, reasonable uh, and logical is that uh, in Esdalen people tend to look at the sky much more often. So it could be a selection effect uh, of the fact that people look more often the sky and so you see also UAPs, unidentified flying phenomena there. The other exotic uh, interpretation is that, well, if we are visited I wouldn't be surprised that people would visit this kind of location geophysically because of the minerals that are there, like scandium, copper, zinc, and um, maybe because of uh, some energetic um, phenomena that are produced by the ground. So maybe, <laughs> who knows, to make it just a, a joke, uh, they could go there like when, when we go to, to make gasoline and a gasoline station or something. That's very funny, but uh, we cannot exclude, but we, uh, we don't have an answer. We only want uh, data using very well calibrated instruments that we can control. Yeah, you mentioned that the lights normally don't have a structure. Um, 
you know, I was when I was researching, I was surprised to find that there were reports of structured craft also seen because I had always assumed it was just the ball lights. Can you give us a little bit more information on what those structured sightings are and kind of what do the craft look like when they are sighted? People sometimes is uh, posting uh, reports which are uh, very well described by Project S. Dahlen website by Professor Erling Strand. And um, people is reporting several shapes. And uh, one of the last one is uh, uh, like a cube in the air. Sometimes they see semisphere and some others uh, triangles. In my case, we, I was not alone there. It was the summer, August 2000, so 23 years ago. Uh, I was with some colleagues. They were, we were about uh, three at a location and other two at another location two kilometers away. It was a triangle and with the three lights at the vertexes, with no light in the, in the center, which came just toward us. And it was um, quite easy to look at it with a binocular, but we couldn't uh, take any video because we didn't have a video camera there. We couldn't take photo because it was moving in the sky, but it was clearly a flying machine. What I can say is that uh, I, I always have to try to be the devil advocate of myself. I cannot exclude that that one was, could have been uh, some kind of experimental drone uh, and there are several kinds of drones, especially Americans, or, but also European and Russian, uh, that have geometrical shapes like a lozenge, like uh, triangles, uh, deltas or something. So we cannot exclude that. What left me perplexed is that this thing was just over our heads, very close, I would say, and it didn't fly away. It simply disappeared over our heads in the sense that those three lights turn slowly off. Another um, thing that we saw, it was just a few days later, a very little light, completely different, which was translucent, uh, weakly luminous, so like a 200 watt um, bulb, uh, which was very close to us, about 90 meters, as I, I measured with my steps uh, the, in the morning. It was looking like um, a flying, uh, a giant firefly, I would say. It stood still there, human height, uh, for about 10 minutes. It was very close. I was able to take a photo in that case, yes. Another time I was with the two colleagues, a physicist there, uh, two years later, and uh, we saw something that were a double red light, uh, which was literally landing in the wood, uh, in the part uh, that uh, um, goes towards the Oyungen Lake. It just went down, we stopped by the car, there was no noise, nothing. So this is my witness. There are several other witnesses by people we spoke there with um, famous witness who are very reserved people. They are not types that would uh, like to make money with their thing, but they wanted to speak with us scientists and tell us uh, what what uh, happened to them. And it was really, yeah, uh, like a close encounter, so at least of the second kind, it was looking. Uh, so it's very interesting. It's not impossible that uh, we are visited. Uh, in fact, uh, Professor Avi Loeb uh, with the uh, Galileo project, uh, with which I've been working, by the way, for one year, for a full year. Uh, professor Avi Loeb is a prominent uh, professor and uh, he accepts the possibility that we are uh, visited. And uh, what we need now is to, to demonstrate or to prove or disprove this thing using very uh, precise uh, sensors instrument, taking data, using the same methodology that we use in astronomy. So, One thing that you said that stood out to me was you're talking about how if we are being visited, that Hestelon might be actually a good place for visitors to come because of all the minerals, uh, and it might just be interesting, a geologically interesting location. I remember reading a report about a piece of land that had been cut out nearby Hestelon. Are you familiar with that story and, and kind of what the, the outcome of, of that was? And if you think there could be any connection between the, the land that had been cut and removed and the lights themselves? 
Well, I don't know um, the story that is around that uh, rectangular cutting thing. I know anyway that I saw because they do they do that uh, in Ireland also. They cut that. Uh, um, it's not terrain. I don't remember the name in English, but it's something that is being cut, um, and when it becomes dry is used to make a fireplace or something like that, okay? So I cannot exclude that uh, prosaic explanation. I don't know if um, there was a connection between a light phenomenon and that thing, but certainly, well, uh, it was really very strange. And um, there is a connection with the ground. Uh, there was a sighting of uh, fissures, by fissures of a light ball, in that case it was a witness, and I went with a colleague there to take some samples of uh, dust, and we had it analyzed at uh, electronic, mi electronic microscopy and uh, uh, X-ray diffraction to try to understand what's, uh, what's there. And there were there iron spheres of um, some micrometers of diameter that were not present in a control sample that was taken uh, 10 meters away from there. They were only there. So mm, there is always an explanation, okay? And these spheres can be of meteoric origin, okay? So it's difficult to say this is of alien origin or something like that because there is always an explanation uh, that is prosaic. And as you know, skeptical uh, scholars always use, uh, take advantage of this thing to explain everything. Uh, sometimes they are right, but sometimes they are not. And they are going against the main goal of science, which is exploration uh, and discovery. So, uh, yeah, that's what I can tell you about that um, ground thing. So how did you and Erling Strand first get connected and start working together? Well, it happened two years after my PhD. And in 1993 or 92 or so, and uh, it was uh, it was a pleasure because Erling was uh, very kind. At that time, uh, I was not using yet. We were not using yet email very often. We were using email at um, university, but I was writing from home. I didn't want to show my colleague that uh, I'm studying UFOs, <laughs> these things, you know, because there is a gossip, you know, and uh, there, there was a stigma or something like that. Anyway, Erling invited me uh, six months later, about one year later, at a very prominent um, symposium, in uh, which was uh, kept in 1994. In uh, spring, in 1994, there was a lot of snow anyway, in Esdalen, and he collected a lot of scientists it was uh, uh, about ball lightning, okay. So, and there were also two, two Nobel candidate physicists. So it was very important. That was the first time I met Erling. And from that time on, I involved Erling Strand and also Professor Björn Hauge uh, in um, the group in which I was working at that time, at the Institute of uh, Radio Astronomy of the National Research Council, involved with uh, my colleague there. And so uh, the Norwegians were involved, but uh, they involved us in, in making a research. So um, in the year 2000, we uh, decided to make a first mission of exploration where my colleagues, uh, electronic engineers, gave a significant uh, contribution uh, installing very powerful antennas, uh, working in the microwave range and above all in the VLF range, very uh, short, very um, long wavelength, which was very precious. Um, I was engaged with uh, trying to photography and video this object and to take optical spectra, which I succeeded, uh, even if it was very difficult, but uh, I succeeded to obtain once a good spectrum of the, the Stalin lights. So uh, the, the um, collaboration went on for about nine years, I think, uh, with um, between Erling, uh, my colleagues, uh, and myself. 
and um, then there was an interruption of these missions, okay, because we didn't have money funding. Uh, that's the main problem, okay. But uh, the, the nice, uh, the good news is that uh, Project Esdalen now has been revived with a new Project Esdalen. Um, instruments have been, uh, are, are being uh, refurbished. Uh, the old ones are there, they have been put in function again. At the same time, we already know what kind of new instruments and sensors we need right now using the technology of now uh, for improving this research. For instance, like an old sky camera, we didn't have that, or a um, pan-tilt-zoom camera, which is able to zoom on uh, and track the object uh, and possibly take images, but also possibly spectra using uh, fiber optics. In fact, I prepared um, a research plan that is uh, published um, somewhere there in the Project Stalin thing, and also on my ResearchGate um, portal. And uh, yes, and so this collaboration actively has started again. I don't have at present time money to go to Stalin, but I hope next year I will, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the observation stations that are out there currently and what the planned upgrades are? Like, what exactly what are the upgrades you're going to be doing to each of the stations? In the past, uh, since uh, the year 2002, I think, if I remember, there was uh, one uh, observatory which was called uh, Stalin Interactive Observatory, also Blue Box, which is a container. Uh, we, where you can um, you have uh, several instruments like uh, controls of uh, cameras, uh, telecameras. That there were several cameras that were uh, monitor the, monitoring the valley at several points of the valley. There was a radar. Uh, there was um, spectrum analyzer um, and also VLF uh, antenna, very powerful. That was built by the Italian. Um, colleagues uh, in the engineering part. Uh, the new thing uh, that we want to install is, uh, as, I saw, as I said, uh, something like at least two cameras, old sky cameras, and uh, two pan tilt zoom camera, which means something that is able to track now the object, not only to, to, uh, to catch photos of the object uh, in a fixed, uh, you know, view, view field, but uh, able to zoom on it and track it like uh, when we are using a radar substantially so that we can take exposure of these phenomena and also zoom on them so that we can have a much higher resolution of uh, this kind of phenomena. For instance, in 1999, December 1999, the Stalin Observatory uh, by Erling Strand clearly and these uh, students got a very prominent phenomenon, which was practically a fully illuminated triangular uh, light object, which was literally sucking, sucking a, a light bulb inside. If we had had the pan-tilt zoom camera, we would have had a much better resolution and we would have seen what exactly it is. Not only that, but we would have taken a spectrum because you can connect a spectrograph uh, to that using uh, uh, fiber optics uh, without any need to drag it uh, due to the weight, uh, mechanical inertia or something. So there are new instruments that uh, will improve uh, the quality of the data. And as it is being uh, done, uh, with the um, Galileo project, uh, there will be use of artificial intelligence to be able to uh, promptly identify known phenomena like airplanes, uh, birds, uh, insects, uh, flying uh, um, bags uh, moved by the wind, everything. So uh, artificial intelligence is able to exclude instantly something and so we don't lose our time uh, for those and we concentrate our attention only on this phenomenon. Then there are electromagnetic instruments that we want to, uh, to first uh, we're improving the VLF part. I will suggest a microwave spectrum analyzer and uh, yeah, fundamentally it is, it is this, it is the same 
system that the Galileo project is using. Also acoustic measurement of acoustic waves, ultrasounds, infrasounds, and, and, and possibly also a radar. One, one interesting upgrade I think you mentioned in your paper was possibly deploying drones as well that might be able to go and, and spot the phenomenon. Is that, is that kind of like a phase two of upgrades or would yeah. that be something? Yes. Yeah. yeah, maybe talk about that and how that would work if, if we were deploying drones from the observatory. Well, yes, uh, the master plan is um, incremental, okay, step by step, because we need the first to demonstrate that we are able, that the uh, instruments are working, that we are able to, to, to get the data and to publish them, okay, in possibly on peer review journal, okay. Then we can go to the next step. Uh, drones now, as you know, are very sophisticated. Uh, they, they have uh, high-resolution uh, cameras, and it has happened many times that uh, dull lights have been seen very close to the ground. I took uh, at least a two or three photographs of the phenomenon while the phenomenon was very close to the ground. So a drone uh, with um, a range, possibly, Maybe 30 minutes would be enough, but now there are drones that can last two hours and uh, it would be beautiful. It can fly over and take uh, images all the time of the phenomenon in a very, very close uh, range. So that would be very important and also not so expensive because with the $3,000 um, we can already buy a good uh, little drone. Yes. How, when you when you do look at the Hestelin lights through spectro, uh, through your different measurements, do you? What is the? Um, is there any signatures of the lights that are unique in terms of the energy that they're putting out um, compared to other known light phenomena? Yes, uh, but we didn't find it yet. Well, uh, we found something because the spectra, uh, specifically of the Stalin lights show a continuum. So show something that could be produced by total ionization of the atmospheric gas, okay? Or anyway, a plasma, okay? It, but it's undulated. It's made of multi-peaked uh, uh, characteristic that is, is not seen in, uh, in uh, other phenomena like uh, prosaic, like current lights, airplane lights. Uh, we don't see this behavior. And uh, after we check the responsibility curve of the camera, of course, because we have to calibrate, we have to check everything there. Uh, but uh, there is a characteristics uh, which I am searching for in particular. Sometimes uh, uh, lights can produce the spectral lines. And when you plot uh, the spectrum on a graph that uh, gives intensity versus wavelength, you have the lines like peaks, okay, that are jumping and this way you can identify uh, due to uh, chemical, uh, specific chemical elements, okay. Okay, so if you aim at uh, a mercury vapor light, uh, we already know the wavelength and you see the, the, the spectral lines that are, um, have one peak, another spectral line has another peak. I am expecting that if these lights are artificial objects, they might produce a very strong magnetic field. Okay, when a magnetic field is very strong and it's inside the plasma, inside the heated gas, this magnetic field makes so that the spectral lines are split in two peaks instead of one. Uh, the, the separation of the two peaks is proportional to the magnetic field strength. So from the separation of the peaks, we can measure di directly the magnetic field strength without knowing any distance, okay? Because in this case, it's at zero, zero distance on, on the plasma, differently from a magnetometer where the intensity decreases with the inverse of the cube of the distance. In that case, no, you can measure directly. It's very important because if, uh, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm proposing a medium resolution spectrograph, 
which is quite higher, much higher resolution, at least 10 times, 25 times bigger than the one that we used in the past, um, that can allow to uh, resolve uh, these uh, split uh, peaks uh, to measure the intensity, but also to make inference on a possible propulsion mechanism. For instance, if you suppose that you have a machine that is made of superconductor materials, okay, and so you can you can make it you know crossed it by very high voltage electri of electricity without producing any heat, any resistance. In that case, you produce also big magnetic field. Okay, I am expecting something that is between one Tesla and probably maybe 100 Tesla. With that instrument, if, if it happens this, then we can make an inference uh, uh, about the propulsion mechanism. Otherwise, we make other measurement about uh, chemical composition, uh, about the continuum, uh, about the shape of the continuum. We can have a lot of uh, information. So we try to anticipate what we would expect to see because in Stalin there is no doubt that the artificial component, which is only 5-10%, is the most interesting. So we have to verify if it exists or not. Okay. But we have to measure. We cannot say, no, it's not possible, no, absolutely. No, no, we have to measure and to verify. It's very difficult. Uh, but uh, with automatic uh, instrumentation station, observing 24 hours, we might have the possibility to obtain this kind of measurement. And this is only one, because not only uh, we make this measurement, I, it's only an example, but we have to uh, make measurement uh, with instruments uh, using simultaneously several instruments uh, working at different wavelengths, at a different mode, okay, and see how uh, um, the time variation of these measurements are correlated, okay? Because from this correlation, like it happens in astrophysics, we can infer the physical mechanism of the phenomenon, let it be artificial or even natural, because also the natural part is very interesting, okay? It can give, we, we, there is a big mystery. The mystery is, uh, is that uh, why this uh, light, uh, I mean the normal, apparently natural light bulbs are so self-contained. Why they, there is no energy loss, okay? It's, it's very important because if we understand the energy mechanism, the physics of that, we can reproduce in a laboratory and also at the industrial level for our use, maybe it's a very clean energy. So just to give you an idea. Yeah, so I know there's been instances where the observer has been able to interact with the lights by using lasers. What was that interaction like and where? what do you think the, the significance of that is? Well, also here there is always a devil advocate that, okay, it was in 1984 by Erling Strand. He aimed a laser at, uh, I'm telling just for uh, listeners, uh, he um, aimed a um, quite powerful laser against a light which was uh, pulsating and it happened that uh, uh, the light changed the pulsation rate eight times out of nine, like if it was communicating. So it is interesting. The point is that, is it real communication or it's a new kind of photon-photon interaction? Uh, of natural origin, okay. This happened also in Italy somewhere. I was with a friend. We aimed a laser, a green laser in this case, against a light that appeared somewhere close to where I am in Emilia Romagna. And uh, the light uh, not only increased the um, luminosity, but also all of a sudden jumped uh, from a point to 200 meters going so fast that uh, no one could uh, could do that, okay? So uh, I have some theories about that. It's quite complicated. And I wrote an article for Cambridge Scholar where I, um, I'm considering several hypotheses, okay? Because we have to consider many hypotheses. We have to consider the most reasonable ones, okay? Uh, namely, uh, those that are based 
on published peer-reviewed articles. There is a point about plasmos. In 2007, a group of German and Russian scientists published a prominent article, technical article of physics on a new journal of physics, which is, by the way, is you can find it online. It's quite mathematical where they demonstrated that plasmas in particular conditions, uh, when they interact with dust, namely they call it a dusty plasma, they start to behave like the DNA, the biological DNA, like a life form. And they also reproduce uh, like the DNA. So they started to think, to hypothesize that uh, the phenomenon of life can happen not only in uh, carbon life forms or possibly silicon life form, but maybe also in plasmas. Well, I have been reading other articles and then I have put the, 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 you know, the things together. I am thinking about also a theory about plasmas by a physicist, a quantum physicist David Bohm. It was his PhD thesis and he demonstrated that the plasmas um, sometimes behave like a whole, only one thing. Not many particles separated, but only one thing, one orchestra of particles. What other uh, mechanism is happening similar to that? Well, you go in the brain. When you think that uh, the theory by, uh, what is his name, um, Nobel uh, physicist uh, Roger Penrose and Stuart Ameroff, who is a neurophysiologist, they made a model about consciousness in the brain, hypothesizing that consciousness moments are due to the fact that there are some particles inside the neurons called microtubules, which are entangled together in, with the mechanism of quantum entanglement. Now back to the plasma. My hypothesis is this. What happens if the same thing that is happening with the microtubules in the brain happens in the particles of the plasma? Because at that point, I would suppose, I, I could hypothesize that these plasmas are not only life form, but at some moment they could become conscious, possibly at the moment in which a laser beam is aimed against them, but not only a laser beam, because a reaction had been recorded also with a, a normal uh, light, even flashlights, or even uh, electromagnetic emission or radar or something. So, you see, I, I have many interests and I try to collect all together and see what can, how the hypotheses come out and what I can prove with the data. When you say the lights could become, the plasma could become conscious, what do you mean specifically by that? Is that, you mean like self-aware of their surroundings? Are they part of something, a larger life form or consciousness? Like how does that come into play? Well, uh, something, something like us, uh, conscious, so um, capable to realize what it has around, okay? It's something like our own brain. So I don't mean consciousness in the spiritual sense, no. I don't mean that. Uh, I mean something that activates the mind, okay? Uh, even the rational part of the mind or in intuitive part of the mind. So this is very exotic uh, speculation, of course, of which I have no proof. But I have um, a plan also for, for proving or disproving this using a high-speed camera. A camera of this kind can record up to 10 million frames per second, okay? Clearly, we couldn't use that because the resolution then would be low. But if we use 5,000 frames per second, we can see if there is a fast variation. If encoded in the fast variation of the light, there is some message, there is some form of intelligence that can be analyzed by mathematical software like time series analysis, fast Fourier transform or something like that. We can measure that. So we can monitor this thing, yes, also in this hypothesis. You mentioned there's there's quite a few natural explanations for the lights. Could you go over some of what those different natural explanations are that maybe we haven't touched on yet for what the, could produce the lights? 
probably the most uh, famous is the piezoelectric theory, uh, which is um, a trigger mechanism, okay? And this is the most famous, why? Because it has been demonstrated with experiments in a laboratory, in particular by um, uh, geophysicist uh, Friedman Freund, German geophysicist Friedman Freund, working in the United States, he's a professor. He demonstrated that when you compress a rock with a strong pressure, that rock produces light, which is piezoelectricity, the same of the lighters, and also electromagnetic radiation. This light, its energy, its voltage that is injected in the atmosphere. And this is a cause of ionization of the atmosphere. In few words, rocks in particular conditions, especially if the, these rocks are quartz or basalt or other similar material, when they are subjected to stress, sometimes tectonic stress, they can produce piezoelectricity. And especially during earthquakes, of course, but not only during earthquakes. And so they, they inject, uh, um, um, you know, voltage in the atmosphere, which uh, is ionizing it and can produce light bulbs. But it does not explain the reason why the light bulbs are so self-contained. They should produce some something like a flash of light and nothing more because we have in physics a mechanism of the so-called adiabatic cooling where the plasma tend immediately to expand and cools down and so the light would last a fraction of a second not more than that so we don't know that but we the trigger is reasonable then there are other mechanisms. One is by a group of my colleagues, Yadar um, Monari, for instance, and this colleague, they think that the Stalin Valley could work like a natural battery, practically, where several elements, in particular copper and zinc, would work like a cathode and anode. And, um, with the conduction of electricity through a conductor, through water of the river, for instance. It's a nice theory, okay, it can, it can be tested also in a laboratory, it's not been tested yet, but it's, uh, yet it's not convincing because uh, the, the energy that can be produced is only a few volts. Uh, instead, uh, these lights are minimum uh, uh, 20 kilowatt, uh, of power up to one megawatt or more, I, as I measured myself in Stalin. So uh, it's a theory. There are several others. Uh, there are um, theory about the um, structure of these lights. I also speculated about that um, because if you have a light bulb that is self-contained, that is long-lasting, this means that uh, you need to a balance of two opposite forces, one that is inward and the other one that is outward. Inward, something like gravity, okay, and the other pressure. So it's something like mini star, okay. And it's very interesting because the mechanism, what what is the gravity? Mini gravity, what can it be? Maybe mini black holes? They are not impossible as a component of the cosmic rays. And you have that, and not only that, but when you have a collapse, you know, um, of the atmospheric gas through the, these mini black holes, uh, you have a collapse of this, you have the increase of temperature, so uh, the atmosphere becomes plasma. And not only that, but the magnetic field, magnetic field lines that are frozen inside the matter, inside the atoms of the air, would be strongly amplified. This means that this magnetic filter would work like a cage able to contain the plasma for even for a long time. Physics says that they, at some point they could explode. This happens with ball lightning, but at my knowledge this never happened with the Stalin lights. Probably because if they are strongly rotating objects, I did another theory, with a German colleague, uh, you, you have uh, openings on the polar region 
where you have uh, emission of energy uh, from the poles. So this keeps equilibrium, uh, keeps balance. But if there is no, if the temperature increase, 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 then you have like a bomb, okay? But this doesn't happen in a stalin. So there is this, then there is the theory of uh, zero point energy, namely the extraction, spontaneous extraction of energy from the quantum vacuum. And uh, Dr. Uh, Harold Putov uh, spoke about that, but also others. After all, our universe was a very little particle, atom-like particle, that um, was born from the vacuum, okay? Like a fluctuation uh, of, of the vacuum. I One day I was walking near the river with my colleague, uh, mathematical physicist, uh, uh, Dr. Arrigo Amadori, and he told, oh, maybe uh, ball lightnings are just failed universes. Uh, so they tried to become a universe, but they didn't succeed. And uh, and so sometimes we see this because uh, the quantum void with a virtual particle is trying all the time to create a universe. Only a few are successful, like our universe. So there is this theory. And um, I think... Uh, I think it's all the most important, but there are also others, of course. And um, for now, I don't want to add too many. I'm really interested in the, the idea of zero-point energy as an explanation. Can you maybe just give a little bit more information on what that really means and kind of what the implications would be if this light phenomenon was a manifestation of zero-point energy creation? Oh, yeah, it's very, very, very important because uh, at that point... Uh, uh, not only we would understand the physics of the plasma per se, okay, what comes out, but we would understand the cause of this, which is clearly no, not piece electricity. And if nature is spontaneously able to produce energy in that way, we don't know how. Uh, if we understand how, then that would be the key for us to extract energy from the vacuum. In that case, we would have a very free, really free energy, like Nikola Tesla was uh, hoping to, to do, and uh, this would revolutionize, revolutionize our life, uh, our propulsion system to go from uh, to other stars, okay, to do absolutely many things, and sending to pension the shakes, and their petrol because at that time we do, wouldn't need it anymore. So it's extremely important. There, for now, there are mathematical models. There have been experiments like the Casimir experiment where they measured a very sudden pressure between two, two plates that are very close. Um, and that shows that it's energy coming from the vacuum. Models say that, but still it's very little energy, okay? We need a lot of energy, and ball lightning and the Stalin lights uh, produce a lot of energy. Sometimes more than one megawatt, and some UFO so-called phenomena have been reported in a famous article by Dr. Jacques Vallée uh, that measure up to 500 mega megawatts. Okay, uh, something incredible. And where do they come from? So uh, the subject is extremely interesting important just for physics because it's the our future are there any other global phenomena that you think are similar to the Hestalin lights that you studied or heard about yes there are several strange phenomena that are reoccurring in the world one is the min min lights in australia in the desert of australia the behavior of the phenomenon is very similar um, and others are in your country, in the United States, like in Marfa in Texas. There are strange lights that are seen most often near the ground. Clearly, hyper-skeptical said, oh, this is Fata Morgana. Uh, this is a current lights um, altered by Fata Morgana effect. But uh, um, engineer uh, Jim Bunnell, who studied very uh, rigorously with some university researcher, uh, this kind of phenomena uh, has excluded completely that. And he's not a guy who is in love with his own theory. 
is only a guy that uh, doesn't work on an armchair, but he takes instruments and try to take measurements. So it's very similar. And but there are other lights that are spectacular, like Stalin, like in the Brown Mountain, United States, North Carolina. Uh, there is an astronomer who is controlling uh, uh, the, um, uh, some video cameras, uh, um, Professor um, Bruce Ketton, who is a director of the Appalachian Observatory, who is monitoring uh, the area of the Brown Mountain, confirming that, uh, yes, there is a phenomenon. And he's a skeptical guy, by the way. Then there are other places like Joplin, where there are strange lights, in the uh, United States also, and some others uh, in South America. Mm. Uh, the point is that uh, if the behavior of this phenomenon is similar, namely light bulbs or strange kinematics, okay, uh, random movement or something, this doesn't mean that the mechanism is the same, because there are several mechanisms that can produce this phenomena. Some are the theories that I told you, and some others could be also radon gas is strongly ionizing. A radon gas coming from the ground can produce that. And um, yeah, and um, ionizing phenomena of several kinds, even uh, uh, something that is flammable uh, can produce uh, that. So it can be different causes and uh, it's worth studying. But as Darwin probably is the most interesting because it's, it is the most studied in the world. There is a strong know-how uh, for the use of sensors. There were being many missions and uh, so I think we have to concentrate there and I'm very happy to be a scientific consultant of Project Esdalen and so far responsible of the scientific part, the research part. I would like to do more, but unfortunately I'm far away. I have no money for the moment to go there, but I, I'm very friendly with Erling and with Fred, uh, with Magnus and with Andreas, that um, I hope we see them together and we, we find something and hopefully, well, uh, money, arrive, donations arrive because everything is depending on the, on the money and uh, we have the competencies, okay? So people must not think only about UFOs, extraterrestrial or something. Could be that too. Whatever it is, it's extremely important and interesting. So who loves science? Go to Stalin. I know when the lights were first uh, witnessed, I think in the 80s when they became really popular in the media, there was a pretty high frequency of sightings. Where are, they, where are the sightings at now in terms of how often the lights are seen compared to when they first were reported by the media in the 80s? Well, I can tell you that uh, I have a chart. I did the chart recently. In the, in the 80s, starting in 1981, and, and then in 1984 and 85, there was Project Esdalen creation. The, the frequency of the lights was at least twice bigger than it is now. So. There is a, a, a decrease, a slow decrease, okay, but still, even now, the frequency of the sightings is five, ten times more high than anywhere else in the world. The location were more or less the same. It's something like a, in an area that is a five by ten kilometers, something, yes, like 50 square kilometers, I would say. I, I wouldn't exaggerate. The location didn't uh, didn't change with the time, more or less. Randomly, they are there, but sometimes it's, they seem to like more uh, specific places. Yes. What do you think is the most notable challenge in this research currently for the Hestelin project? The most notable challenge uh, people would expect, well, uh, demonstrating that we are visited. Okay. That would be very important, but it's not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is the energy factor to try to understand how such a big amount of energy can be self-contained for so long time. That's the most important of all, for two reasons. The first reason is that we can reproduce in a lab, and the second reason is that if they come from the quantum vacuum, 
than we would uh, do miracles, literally, with our technology. So it's um, the energy factor is the most challenging part, the physics factor. Not only that, but also if it were a um, propulsion mechanism from uh, extraterrestrials, we could deduce from the way in which the physical parameters vary in, with time, we could deduce what is the propulsion mechanism. And so that is also physics that we could, uh, and it's another challenge that's worth doing. How can the public or people who are enthusiastic about the Hesselin lights, how could they get involved in helping further the research? First of all, they, it depends what they want to do, because if they want to donate um, and to be constantly informed of what is happening, as Project Desdalen, um, there is a new website that is being built now, and they can be informed all the time, okay? And uh, not only, but uh, when the cameras will get um, functional again, they can follow in real time what happens in Desdalen. And not only, but if, you, if they have the patience to follow some videos, they might discover things that others don't discover directly from the from the video because clearly it's very difficult to uh, revise videos of two three hours okay you become catatonic completely i tried to do that myself and in the past i found something also in that way so this is a way of involvement um, and uh, expecting that they give some donations a pack of cigarettes, for instance, five dollars or something like that, or you know, we're we're begging, uh, and uh, that's what happens with science in general. Okay, others, students, for instance, I mean students of uh, physics, of astronomy, and of engineering, could find something very interesting if they want to make a master thesis there. Uh, um, there is a very brave professor uh, named Adeline Strand there. They, they could do it with me too for the physical part. And also PhD thesis, make, making a research, um, which would be extremely interesting. So they could be involved in a technical way, educational way and technical way, uh, which would be wonderful. So clearly not, uh, in my view, not as a vacation, oh, we go there, we see the aliens that are landing, maybe one day we see something. Well, that's nice, of course, but uh, my opinion is, is what I told you, uh, that is more constructive. Yeah, you mentioned the video, helping review video. Is there plans to open up more of the other data as well for people to be able to review if there's people who are interested? <laughs> yes, of course. Also, we have been planning to put the, the, when we will be ready with the new instruments. Uh, but so very soon, the, the new old camera will be reactivated. Darling is just working right now there in Estalen, helped with uh, some by some colleagues. Uh, no, also electromagnetic data would be recorded, possibly on the cloud. And if uh, there is authorization to go to the cloud, people could take data from there and make research, search for correlations, for something staying from your armchair. Theoretically, you can do that. So it's extremely productive. It's like to have, uh, you know, to have a probe uh, on another planet and the probe is sending data all the time, okay? So you get at home and you take the data, you put on a chart, you do calculations or something. Okay, yeah, last question and then and then I'll let you go. But you mentioned that Erling is actually in Hestelon right now doing some work. Um, can you talk about what that work is and what, what he's doing there this week? You mean the, um, the work that is being done right now? Exactly, yeah, the work that's happening right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not there because it would like to help. Uh, uh, they are just uh, putting in function again the old cameras that uh, have been stopping for some time for the lack of funding and, uh, and that now they're reactivating the old thing. At the same time, we are asking funding. I've been asking funding for very specific instrument that we want to add when... Um, 
when the funding will come, we already know what we, we have to do. We already did the numerical simulation calculations and everything. Before we go, is there any last thoughts or anything else you want to share about Hestel and Lights that we haven't touched on with listeners? Whoever decides uh, to uh, study this kind of phenomena uh, must have two qualities. Um, rigor. It means uh, um, be very accurate experimentally, okay? Um, be mathematical. It's not stories here. It's not ufological story. It's just physics. And the other one, be open-minded enough that your brain doesn't fall from the skull, okay? So to be open-minded in a healthy way, okay? So a healthy skepticism is is uh, very important uh, in, in, in this research, yes. A special thanks to Massimo Teodorani for allowing us to use his music as the underscore for this episode. You can listen to more of his music under his artist name, Totem Tag, on Bandcamp. A link is in the description. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners, which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk.